Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast. Hello, online at schwepp.net. I'm Earl Fontenelle. Episode 7, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast. Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. Well, gentle listener, the Schwepp has reached episode 100. We don't like to clutter episodes up with bump. But we wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who's helped out with this project until now. My family first and foremost, and then all the scholars who've donated their time and expertise, and all the members whose support keeps the Schwepp esoteric in the practical everyday sense of the term. Thank you all. In tracing the story of Western esotericism up to this point, there's been a curious silence, or rather a reverb-filled sacred chapel replete with resonant echoes regarding Hermes the Thrice Greatest. The silence is over. A series of episodes on the Hermetic writings, the Hermetic traditions, and all things Hermes begins here. And the echoes of this history will, of course, continue through the podcast as we look at the first millennium and beyond. So welcome to episode 100, the thrice greatest Hermes. In this episode, we're going to talk about Hermes, the Hermetica, and the Hermetic tradition. Three different, but interlocking subjects. Let's start with Hermes, the origins of the thrice greatest one himself. Hermes is, of course, a god of the Olympian pantheon, an ancient Greek deity. He's the messenger of the gods, and he's the psychopomp, the one who guides the souls of the dead from their deceased bodies to wherever they're going afterwards. So he's an in-betweener, a mediator, a passer-on of information. As Zeus says in the Iliad, for to you, Hermes, is the greatest delight in being a companion of men. He's a very social god. Now you, gentle listener, are engaged with the internet. I know this because you're listening to this podcast. And the internet is just the most obvious modern iteration of Hermes's field of expertise. A vast interconnected web of mediation. The fact that Hermes was regarded by the ancients as the patron of thieves and liars of deception and trickery, the Greeks were no dummies when it came to thinking about what mediation and communication are all about, is obviously appropriate in the context of the internet. So never mind the secret intelligence agencies, Hermes is listening to everything you write and say on the internet. But lovers of Western esotericism know that Hermes is someone quite different from a tricky Greek god. He's an ancient sage associated with Egypt who is the father both of occult sciences like astrology and alchemy, 
and of a collection of writings often known as theoretical or philosophical hermetica, some of which survive from antiquity in the form of the famous Corpus Hermeticum, and which have had a seminal effect on Western thought, especially since the Renaissance. Cue Francis Yates's Giordano Bruno in the Hermetic Tradition. Cue the Hermetic Library, a website full of all kinds of interesting Western esoteric stuff, little of which has anything to do, strictly speaking, with the text we just mentioned. Cue, in short, a vast and complex reception history in which the ancient Greek trickster god has somehow become a kind of benevolent patron of the esoteric side of things. This reception history is very long, very complex, and will occupy many an episode of this podcast. But let's set the stage now. The story of thrice greatest Hermes does not start, of course, with the classical Greek Hermes. It starts, at least as far back as we can trace it, with the Egyptian deity Thot or Tehuti. This is the ibis-headed fellow, also associated with a baboon form, who is the scribe of the gods. He's often pictured doing some writing. But he's also the one who gave humanity certain important arts and sciences, notably the art of writing and the arts commonly known as magical. Now, Thoth also has a role in the judgment of the Egyptian dead on their way to their rather baffling and complex afterlife. So, whether it was because of this role as manager of the newly dead, or the role of presiding over what Greeks call logos, in this case communication might be the most apt translation, perhaps because of both things, or maybe for another reason entirely, the Greeks, when they learned about Thoth, quickly said, ah, yes, you mean Hermes. Great, we can go on from here. There's a lot more to this story, but so far so good. We've got some basics, we've got an equivalency between Hermes and Thoth among the Greeks living in Egypt. We can be a bit more specific and note that the Greeks would also habitually refer to Thoth as the Egyptian Hermes, or even to the Hermes Thoth simply as the Egyptian. Now, when did this start? Greeks had settled in large numbers in Egypt from the 7th century BCE in a colony called Naucratis in the Delta, the Nile Delta, and since Alexander's conquests in the 4th century, had been running Egypt. Thoth and Hermes rubbed shoulders a lot in this period, as you can imagine, and a kind of syncretic Thoth-Hermes figure developed, having characteristics of both gods. Now, the first reference we have to the thrice-greatest epithet are not in Greek referring to Hermes, but in Egyptian referring to Thoth, who is called, for example, on the Rosetta Stone, great-great-great. So, this epithet, in its superlative form, greatest-greatest-greatest, would be transformed to the baby-faced Greek manifestation of this figure, and the thrice-greatest Hermes the Egyptian would be born. Incidentally, I've wondered why when traditionally religious people of Northern Europe decided to name their days of the week based on the classical models, they chose Woden Votan Odin for Wednesday, the day the Greeks called Hermes's day and the Romans called Mercurius's day. Woden is a rather bloodthirsty god, and Hermes Mercury in the Greco-Roman tradition always prefers trickery to a fight. And Woden is also the head of his pantheon, while Hermes is a mere messenger. But when we recall that Woden is the giver of the runes to mankind, so there's the written word side of things, a master of magical arts, and especially of disguise and subterfuge, the arts of glamour, and generally a consummate liar and trickster, in fact, he's depicted as the kind of guy who would make a very good Norse king, 
when you take on all these things into account, you see the logic. And hence, the Schwepp tries to release new episodes on a Wednesday, in honor of all facets of the complex figure of Hermes. That we habitually fail to do so, we consider an example of classic hermetic trickery, and therefore actually a strength rather than a failing. So there. So, back in Greco-Egyptian society, at a certain point, texts began to be written, ascribed to Hermes, or featuring Hermes as their author. These texts are known collectively as Hermetica, though in practice, when people say Hermetica, they often mean a much narrower group of texts, the theoretical Hermetica, when they use this term. More on these theoretical texts in a moment. The podcast has featured one of the Hermetic texts already in episode 41, one which appropriately only exists as a rumor and sort of in the form of short mysterious quotations in later authors. This is the so-called Hermes text, among the earliest documents of Hellenistic astrology. This text was attributed to Hermes. It was written by Hermes. So what was going on here? Did people think that a god was writing books on astrology? Well, no. While we can't date how early this tradition started, already by the Hellenistic period, there was a tradition of Hermes as a human sage, as an ancient and wise Egyptian writer on all manner of learned subjects. Artapanos, a 2nd century BCE Jewish writer, produced a romance about the life of Moses in which he assimilated Moses and Hermes. So, ancient sage Moses, and you say he's the same guy as Hermes, so thereby you can maybe take the authority of the Jewish Moses and add the authority of the ancient Egyptian wisdom to the Jewish Moses, right? This is probably not the first time this kind of association will be made, but it was most certainly not the last time. As many listeners already know, the idea of an ancient Egyptian sage called Hermes, often fitted into lineages of wisdom, especially esoteric ones, has a very long history indeed. In the podcast so far, we've met Hermes, the founder of astrology, and now also Hermes, who is the same guy as Moses. But we shall go on to meet, in no particular order, Hermes, the teacher of Moses, Hermes, the plagiarist of Moses, Hermes, the student of Moses, Hermes, the philosopher, with whom Proclus and Iamblichus engage in dialogue, Hermes, the antediluvian witness to the truth of Christianity or Gentile prophet, Hermes, the Trinitarian theologian, or Hermes, the evil pagan opponent of the Christian truth, Hermes, the Manichaean prophet, Hermes, the alchemical sage who built the Egyptian pyramids as his personal laboratories, Hermes, who is the same as the Islamic prophet Idris, Hermes, who is the same as the Kabbalistic Jewish Enoch, Hermes reincarnated in 15th century Italy as a living human being, Hermes the magician, of course, and many, many more iterations. So Hermes has been reimagined in a baffling number of ways, but there's more bafflement awaiting us, for the tradition from quite early has sometimes posited a number of historical Hermeses. Yes, I know the plural should be Hermes, but please indulge me. There is a long and perplexing tradition which goes back at least to the Hellenistic, and has a reception going right through the Islamicate first millennium and beyond, as well as in the East Roman and Latinate worlds, a tradition that there were in the distant past a number of beings known as Hermes. Sometimes the first one was a god, and the later ones were mortal men of surpassing knowledge. At other times they were all human. Um, Cicero tells us in the first century BCE of five Hermeses, 
all of them divine or semi-divine, only the last of which is the one the Egyptians call Dot. There are many other formulations, especially in the Abrahamic traditions, which posit a human sage, forgetting the divine origin of our character altogether. At any rate, alongside the multiple possible Hermeses, there were multiple Hermetic lineages, again from at least the Hellenistic period onwards. Let's quote Garth Fowden here, quote, The most classic genealogy contrived in the Hellenistic era during the 3rd or the 2nd century BCE, <clears throat> BCE starts the Hermes series with Thoth, who carved his knowledge on stelae and concealed it. His son was Agathodaimon, who himself begat the second Hermes, called Trismegistus, whose son was Tat. But nothing is more uncertain than divine genealogies. End of quote. Pay attention to that last sentence, gentle listener. It reigns among genealogies involving Hermes, both the god, the man, and in a number of iterations where the line between god and man is kind of hard to draw. Ficino, in the Italian Renaissance, will place Hermes in his wisdom lineage, as is very well known, but less well known is the way in which he changes the place occupied by Hermes in the transmission of the Philosophia Perennis from one account to another. And why not? We shall be exploring many, many of these lineages as the podcast progresses, and the only constant seems to be that Hermes will occupy a significant and important place in them. The exact place he occupies, though, can vary wildly. Now, there are lots of other ideas about how the situation arose, but here's the basic situation. By the Hellenistic period, if not earlier, there was already a tradition among Greeks, later taken up by Romans as their cultural knowledge expanded in the first centuries BCE, that there had been long ago a particularly wise person or persons named Hermes. This person or person was Egyptian. This association remains constant. Hermes is always Egyptian. In fact, Hermes and Egyptian wisdom go hand in hand throughout the reception history. Now, this person or persons wrote books, many of which survived in antiquity, and this brings us to the topic of Hermetica. Until the Roman period, these books seem to have covered a bewildering range of technical subjects, including but not li limited to astrology, alchemy, the occult powers of natural objects, and so forth. Although most of this early Hermetic literature is now lost, we know it was there because people referred to it. And it doesn't stop in antiquity either. We have technical Hermetica from the entire medieval period in Greek, Latin, Arabic, Persian, and a number of other languages. We have, as we mentioned in episode 39, pseudo-Aristotelian Hermetica, discussing the occult properties of objects and other matters of high scientific priority in Arabic. There are lots and lots of different works, all of them Hermetica, on various technical and oftentimes recondite or even occult subjects, written over thousands of years. The reputation of Hermes as Egypt's premier sage obviously had a long-lasting heft. This pseudo-authorial figure has a supporting cast of characters who sometimes accompanied him either in genealogies, like the one we quoted from Fowden a minute ago, or in dialogue within texts, so talking to each other in Hermetic texts. These include Isis, the Egyptian goddess whom we know, Tat, a figure who often appears as Hermes' disciple in some Hermetica, and whose name is probably a simple corruption of Tot, so here we have Hermes talking to Hermes, a multiplication of Hermeses, which as we've just seen is the rule rather than the exception. Someone called Agathodaimon, or good deity, 
or good spirit, depending on how you want to translate daimon, and Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, whom we encountered in the incubation sanctuaries of ancient Greece in episodes 70 to 72, whose Egyptian counterpart was Imuthes or Imhotep. Often, in the case of a dialogue between, say, Isis and Horus, or an unnamed interlocutor in the role of a teacher, speaking to Asclepius, we will call this text hermetic, based on its form, the general ideas in the text, and so forth, even when Hermes is not named. But one thing should be made clear. It is really only the presence of either the figure of Hermes, as author and or interlocutor, or of some of these other hermetic personnel, which reliably makes a text hermetic in antiquity. We cannot find a common set of doctrines or whatever which characterize all the hermetica. Hence, in that sense, there is no hermetic philosophy or hermetic tradition or hermetic knowledge in antiquity. There's lots of different stuff that travels under the name of Hermes. This has, of course, led to scholars devising distinctions among the types of hermetic texts, and we'll discuss some of these in more depth next time, the most common of which takes the form technical versus theoretical, or sometimes technical versus philosophic. And these distinctions are helpful, but the point is we shouldn't approach this vast body of disparate texts by many different authors over many hundreds of years as belonging to some single hermetic tradition. If it's hermetic in antiquity, this means that it's either attributed to Hermes, or is a dialogic text featuring at least some of the hermetic supporting cast of characters, and that's it. So from such a disparate body of writings, how did the idea of a hermetic teaching or a hermetic doctrine or even hermetic philosophy in an up-to-date academic context ever arise? Well, first of all, in the old days, of course, many people really thought that there was some single author of all the Hermetica, named thrice great as Hermes or Hermes the Egyptian, and he really just wrote all this stuff. So we get all kinds of references in ancient sources to the books of Hermes, often citing a vast library of works. So there does seem to have been an idea that a universal sage had once lived who could write about astrology and metaphysics, the occult virtues of plants and stones and the nature of the soul. In other words, something pretty recognizable as what people nowadays mean by the hermetic tradition, a tradition involving, speaking loosely, occult sciences alongside a particular middle platonistic philosophical set of ideas, can sort of be found in antiquity, but we must be careful here. If we want to find a single hermetic tradition in antiquity, we will deceive ourselves. We can find the idea of one, but if we actually look at the text, we don't see it there, if that makes sense. Now there's a much more focused question we can ask and which we shall be asking in no less than three major episodes of the podcast. Namely, are the texts in the Corpus Hermeticum and other theoretical Hermetica evidence for a spiritual or religious path in late antiquity? And that is a valid question to ask, but these texts are a special sort of Hermetica, as we shall see. So, just to reiterate, the idea that there is a Hermetic teaching in antiquity, we find it in authors. The actual essence of hermetic teaching, we don't find it in the texts. We find a whole bunch of stuff traveling under the name of Hermes. In some cases, we can guess or we're told outright what kind of hermetica are being cited by a given author. So when Iamblichus refers to the teachings of Hermes, he's clearly referring to texts of a philosophical, theoretical nature. He sees Hermes as a philosopher who has some interesting contributions to make about the properties of matter, which is always a live problem among late Platonists. 
But then if we look at Abu Mashar, the great astrological authority of the 8th and 9th centuries, when he refers to Hermes, he's clearly referring to astrological writings, traveling under the name of Hermes. And at other times, we're not even sure what types of works are meant when authors refer to Hermetica. Clement of Alexandria, for example, refers to 42 books of Hermes in the Stromates, but we really have no idea what kind of Hermetica he means here. Later on, as listeners are probably aware, the idea of a hermetic tradition arose. And these ideas are somewhat disconnected from either the ancient texts or from the figure of the Egyptian sage Hermes. This is why today, if you want to study Western esotericism at university level, you may find yourself enrolled at the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Other Currents at the Universiteit von Amsterdam. Now, what does Western esotericism have to do with these ancient hermetica? Sometimes nothing at all, sometimes everything. It depends on what you're looking at. But oftentimes we find that the term hermetic has simply evolved so that it has a life of its own, and it means something we never find in any ancient hermetic text. You know, if Aleister Crowley is a promoter of the hermetic wisdom, does that mean we find ideas from the Corpus Hermeticum in Crowley's thought? No, no, it doesn't. He might quote the Corpus Hermeticum now and again, but that's not the main point of what's going on in Crowley. So, important developments here are the fact that alchemy comes to fall decisively under the patronage of the sage Hermes in post-classical times, such that nowadays we still refer to something that's been hermetically sealed, because it's been sealed by the arts of Hermes, which are, of course, the arts of alchemy, and the alchemists in medieval times are the ones who developed this way of sealing stuff. So, there's the hermetic art and hermetic philosophy, which in a um, post-classical alchemical context comes to simply mean alchemy, basically. We also have to take into account the reception of the Corpus Hermeticum in the Italian Renaissance which was to have such profound effects on European thought and Western esotericism, and to which this podcast will, of course, cast its beady eyes at the appropriate moment. But this is only the tip of a complex reception iceberg, leading to Hermes's having become a kind of symbol for the esoteric traditions in the West, or even for the occult. While this kind of makes sense already, based on the antique ideas about the ancient sage, who's often sort of painted as an esoteric sage in various ways. We nevertheless want to go one step at a time and look at how the different aspects of the Hermes mythos developed. After all, we even have modern Hermetica. In the year 1908, a group of devotees of the thrice greatest one, signing themselves Three Initiates, published the Kibalion, in Chicago, an influential book in 20th century esoteric thought, containing, quote, the essence of the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus. Now, the Kibalion is not really about anything like astrology or alchemy, or the kind of middle platonizing metaphysics and cosmologies laid out in the theoretical Hermetica. In fact, the Kibalion is strangely reminiscent of ideas current at the turn of the last century among Theosophical Society members in North America. And it's also very reminiscent of the New Thought movement in the United States. However, I see no reason why you couldn't argue that this text has just as much right to be called a genuine Hermetic text as the text found in the Corpus Hermeticum. Both the Kibalion and the Theoretical Hermetica in the Corpus 
draw on and repackage current ideas under the hermetic imprimatur, thus sealing them with the authority of ancient Egyptian wisdom. In the case of the late antique hermetic writings, these ideas are drawing on a mix of Egyptian religious and philosophical traditions, along with a worldview which we generally call roughly Middle Platonist, with the usual admixtures of Stoic and Aristotelian material where appropriate, in other words, just the Egyptian zeitgeist of that time among a certain group of Greek speakers. While in the Kebalion, as we've seen, the ideas in question are esoteric ideas drawing on theosophy and other stuff which was in the air at the time. Both claim to represent something of immemorial antiquity when the ideas found in them are demonstrably of their time and place. This, in short, is how we even know that the theoretical Hermetica are late antique, or at the outside at least, no earlier, let's say, than the Hellenistic period, and probably at least achieved their final form in late antiquity. And this is how Casaubon, the great humanist scholar, brutally debunked the antiquity of the Hermetica in 1614, along with a rigorous philological scalpel and many other critical tools. This stuff couldn't be ancient Egyptian wisdom, said Casaubon, because it's obviously dating to the later Roman Empire when a bunch of other Middle Platonists were writing very similar things. It's unlike anything we find in the classical period, never mind the dimmest reaches of antiquity. But note that this sort of debunking did indeed shake the faith of some of the devotees of Hermes the Egyptian in the early modern period because they really literally thought this was ancient wisdom that predated Moses and so on and so forth. But the thrice great one was fundamentally unfazed. The Kibalion is merely one of his many modern publishing ventures, and it has just as much or as little right to claim the mantle of ancient Egyptian wisdom as the Poimandres or the Discourse of the Eighth and the Ninth or any other ancient Hermetic text. So this brings us finally to the theoretical Hermetica. This is the stuff people talk about when they are talking about Hermetica nine times out of ten. In late antiquity, and we will be speaking with some scholars who want to put this stuff earlier, but let's say in late antiquity, a new genre of hermetic writing would appear under the name of Hermes and his associated cast of characters, but it's actually an exaggeration or maybe just wrong to call it a new genre. Let's say that these texts have some fairly recognizable features, which we can point to, so they sort of tend to follow a certain pattern. They're full of piety and often use a kind of hymnic language. They're philosophically Middle Platonists taken in a broad sense, uh, with a noetic archetype and a divine noose taken as givens, for example. And the human soul is a separable entity which is seeking to rejoin its uh, divine noetic source. They are often but not always dialogues between the hermetic cast of characters we alluded to earlier. These texts sometimes deal with a contemplative practice and ideas of redemption and immortalization through special knowledge, sometimes a higher knowledge called noesis or gnosis in the text, which maybe we can't even talk about as knowledge. We'll get into that in the course of the podcast. It may be something that transcends knowledge, but anyway, sometimes this salvific knowledge is also just knowledge of things like the way the universe arose and the nature of matter and how the stars and celestial bodies work and stuff like that. So these characteristics I've just mentioned are all descriptive of the theoretical Hermetica of late antiquity. The texts collected in the Corpus Hermeticum, along with fragments found in the anthology of John of Stobie, 
the Coptic text of the Discourse of the Eighth and the Ninth, and a few precious papyrus fragments make up our basic lot of theoretical hermetica. Now, these texts tend to be linked by hermetic presentation. Either Hermes or his associated cast of characters are present in some way. But I've already fallen into the trap of assuming that there is a linking thought behind these texts as a whole. There may be. We shall be interviewing several scholars who feel that the very different ways in which the world is presented in the theoretical Hermetica, sometimes as a place, for example, of overwhelming goodness and beauty to be embraced, sometimes as a veil of evil to be escaped, we will talk to scholars who think that these can be reconciled into a single worldview underlying a single spiritual path in antiquity. But we shall be interviewing other scholars, and if I were to interview myself, I probably would be one of these, who find it hard to read these texts as really showing a common thought world in the details. Now this is okay. We could maybe, for example, say that there is at least as much commonality across the extent theoretical Hermetica from antiquity as there is across, say, Middle Platonism. There are common tendencies, we recognize it when we see it, we can even describe it in general or helpful ways, but if we started talking about a hermetic central teaching or a hermetic worldview, we might start to be on shaky ground, just as we would be if we tried to talk about a central Middle Platonist worldview, and then we brought Philo, Plutarch, and Numenius into the conversation in a detailed way, and suddenly we'd be like, oh, what exactly was supposed to be the common worldview that all these guys share? And, you know, the same thing goes for early Christianity, by the way, but even more so. If we want to say what the early Christian worldview was, we're going to say, well, it's a bit difficult to pin down, really. It's, there's a lot of variation among these texts. So let's spend a little bit more time introducing the Corpus Hermeticum and our other theoretical Hermetica from antiquity, just so everyone is clear on what the texts are, the basic situation we find ourselves in vis-a-vis -vis the evidence. The Corpus Hermeticum, so-called, that's just the Latin name, it means body of hermetic writings, is a collection of 18 texts in Greek, some of which are longish and some are really, really short, some of which are in a relatively decent textual state and some are in an absolute shamble so we can hardly read them, more on the state of the text in episode 102 of the podcast, along with one text in Latin called Asclepius in the manuscripts, which we know for quite complicated reasons, was based on an earlier Greek text, which is called Teleos Logos, Perfect Discourse. But it survived in Latin. The Greek treatises, or most of them, arrived in a single anthological manuscript, Laurentianus Graecus 7133, and when that arrived in Florence, they were immediately translated into Latin by Marsilio Ficino in 1462. Famously, Ficino set aside his ongoing translation of Plato in favor of the more ancient wisdom of Hermes. This is actually more of an icon of the history of Western esotericism than what really happened, as we shall see. It wasn't until the edition of Ludovico Lazzarelli, I should say translation, but it kind of like an edition, who was working from a more complete uh, manuscript, that the whole corpus that we know and love with the Asclepius appended to it was published in 1507, quite a bit later. Great stuff, but we're getting ahead of our story here. But rest assured, this whole chain of texts and events will be dealt with at the proper point in the podcast, of course, and we'll get to the bottom of the complicated problems of textual transmission, which made Ficino's edition of the thrice greatest one's wisdom so influentially deceptive, which actually takes us back to Hermes the trickster in an appropriate way. But there are a few notes of interest on the corpus here. First of all, this collection, the Corpus Hermeticum, 
seems to have been a collection, or let's say a collection existed which contained most of the same treatises, um, certainly as early as the 11th century and quite possibly in antiquity. We know there were anthologies of this kind of hermetic writing, theoretical anthologies, circulating in late antiquity. We just don't know what relationship they had necessarily with our Corpus Hermeticum. When the texts in the Corpus Hermeticum were written is also a mystery. Most scholars would say late antique Egypt and the social and economic crises of the third century may have even been a formative influence on our corpus, as we shall see in due course. But in terms of how far back elements found in these texts go, it's anyone's guess, but some of the ideas are manifestly ancient, ancient Egyptian ideas, which can be traced back two millennia or more, though now they have been absorbed into a Hellenicized Middle Platonistic thought world to some degree. Others seem blatantly late antique. But again, we shall be interviewing at least one scholar who sees nothing inherently impossible in positing a Hellenistic origin for the texts in the Corpus Hermeticum, so Philo of Alexandria could have been reading them. Anyway, our corpus is special because it's our largest collection of theoretical hermetica. It's all collected in one manuscript tradition, more or less, and it's all begging to be interpreted. As we shall see, interpretations from Ficino onward have varied a lot. These works inhabit a thought world with strong elements of Egyptian lore and strong vocabulary, at least, from a middle Platonistic milieu. Everyone agrees on that. But beyond this, how should these texts be read? Can we even read them properly, given the state of the texts? These are all questions we shall be investigating. However, we can nowadays add some really fascinating other theoretical hermetica to the corpus, which expands our knowledge of the kinds of thought we find in the corpus hermeticum. We have a text from Nag Hammadi, in Coptic translation from the Greek, known as the Discourse of the Eighth and the Ninth, or known more poetically by my preferred title, The Agdoad Reveals the Ennead. This text is really, really interesting, and we shall be discussing it in coming episodes. We also have a group of texts known as the Stobias Fragments. So let's explain this quickly. In the 5th century, quite late antiquity, a learned fellow called John of Stobi, Stobi is in what's nowadays Macedonia, compiled a massive selection of passages from a huge range of Greek literature for his son's education. This sort of compilation or florilegium writing was very common in late antiquity, lucky for us. And we've referred before to Photius's Bibliotheca, which is a 9th century work along similar lines. Although Photius, of course, is deeply Christian. Now, John of Stoby, or Stobias as he's called, because to a humanist scholar everyone needs a Latin name, John of Stoby collected a ton of hermetic writings many of which are unknown to us otherwise, and one of which, called Kore Cosmu, or Maiden or Daughter of the Cosmos, is like the Eighth and the Ninth and Corpus Hermeticum 1, 13, and other texts, a proper work of cosmological and ontological theology. So we'll have to talk about that one as well. So these are the Stobias fragments, which have recently been translated into English by David Litwa, with whom we shall be speaking later in this series. We also have a bunch of other texts, like the Armenian Hermetica, brought into the conversation by Jean-Pierre Mahé, many Islamicate Hermetica, most of which are technical, but which occasionally preserve something which might be a distant echo of ancient Hermetic theoretical ideas, medieval Latin Hermetica, also usually technical, and of course the Kebalion and so forth, if we want to call those modern Hermetica. 
but let's keep it ancient and theoretical for now. How cogent is our grouping together of these theoretical hermetica historically? Does it reflect our prejudices, or maybe the prejudices of an ancient anth anthologizer? Or does it reflect an actual movement in antiquity in Egypt, which expressed itself through hermetic writings, but was not primarily concerned with things like alchemy and astrology, but rather with metaphysics and salvific gnosis? A second question we could ask here is, if our grouping is cogent, if these theoretical hermetica do belong together in some way, how much do all these texts reflect a single mindset or worldview or theoretical background? In other words, are we Unitarian readers of the theoretical Hermetica? And if not, again, how do we justify our grouping together of these texts into the category theoretical Hermetica? Then there's the question of, just because the texts seem to have contradictions at the level of ideology or in cosmology and so on and so forth, so what? They could still all, of course, refer to a single identifiable, describable spiritual movement of some kind in antiquity. I mean, after all, if we look at the letters of Paul and the Gospel of John, we wouldn't necessarily think they belong to the same uh, religious movement, but as history turned out, they do. These are some of the many questions we shall be considering in upcoming episodes on the Hermetica, but it would be really nice to end this episode on some note of the kind of reception of Hermes, the sort of incredible fertility of the idea of the ancient thrice greatest sage. You know what? It's episode 100. Let's check out some music. Here are the tropicalismo sounds of Jorge Ben, the great Brazilian funk master, with Hermes Trismegisto Escriveu, off the 1976 album Africa Brazil. You might also want to check out his Hermes Trismegisto e sua celeste Tabua de Esmeralda, or Hermes Trismegistus and his celestial emerald tablet, with some very esoteric cover art and lyrics co-credited to Falconelli. Or should that be Funkanelli? Join us next episode when we interview Brian Copenhaver, translator of the Hermetica, and scholar not only of the ancient texts, but also the long reception tradition of the Hermetic wisdom in 15th century Italy and beyond. Until then, be like Hermes Trismegistus's celestial emerald tablet, and stay esoteric. Diamante em uma aula, me mata esmeralda, ele escreveu.